The talk this evening is on control. Control is a mechanism we use to cope with insecurity. The desire to control, the endeavor to control, is essentially a a reaction to fear, to anxiety. It's used to alleviate the pressures of uncertainty and unpredictability. By trying to control the world we live in, by trying to control other people, by trying to control ourselves, we attempt to protect ourselves from vulnerability, from pain, from being hurt. And as long as a state whatever level exists within of insecurity, of instability, we'll find ourselves in that position of trying to control the world we live in, trying to order the world, our own personal, particular individual world. We desire, the mind does desire in our lives, safety on every level. The mind desires safety on the emotional, the the physical, the psychological level. If we don't feel trusting, if we don't feel that sense of safety, stability within ourselves, invariably we try and find a sense of being safe through trying to order, through trying to control our own personal world. We don't want to be hurt. We don't want to experience pain. And so often we try and avoid it through seeking security, stability, through sources outside of ourselves. And control, the ability to control our world, ourselves, is seemingly one of the most apparent ways to bring about that sense of safety, to bring about the end of anxiety. And yet control in itself is a mechanism which is destructive, destructive to our own well-being, destructive to the growth of our own understanding. And no true security, no true safety, is ever born of control. And as long as that element of control, ordering, exists in our worlds, exists within ourselves, there will also be with it either oppression or suppression. The desire to control, the need at times that arises to control, does make us, as individuals, aggressive. It leads us to try and exert power over other people, to dominate and influence other people. And then there is oppression. And oppression is a very gross form of aggression. Or that same element of control, the same desire, for safety, the same fear and anxiety, makes us withdraw from the world. It's directed 
inwardly rather than outwardly, and there is suppression. And the fear, the anxiety that makes us withdraw, that makes us close ourselves off, leaves us very open to being dominated, controlled, and oppressed by others, or by the standards, the expectations, the demands of the particular society, social world that we live in. Control, whether it is directed outwardly, whether it is directed inwardly, always has the effect of making us as individuals very closed, very narrow, very defensive. And in itself, breeds further fear and further insecurity. If we are to be truly open in life, truly sensitive, we need to be able to understand and see the element of control as it exists within our own lives. If we are going to be free from both defensiveness and aggression, if we're going to be able to share in trust, in love, in caring with other people, then we need to understand the ways in which we either try and control others or the ways in which we try and control ourselves. If we are going to be able to form relationships of equality where there is neither oppression nor suppression, then essentially we need to be able to understand our own fears, our own anxieties, our own ways of coping with the unpredictable, with the uncertain. We need to be able, each one of us, to look within ourselves, to look within our lives, and to see the influence of fear. For certainly, fear is one of the more dominant, driving, and influencing basic characteristics that exist within the individual. It is so conditioned on such a subtle level, mm. the need to protect ourselves, the need to be defensive. It's when we can understand our fears, be open to them, accept them, see them, that we have the potential to transcend the limitations of fear. It's when we also can discover, certainly, another dimension of security, of stability, of balance within ourselves that's not dependent on order. When we discover that other dimension of stability, then we're no longer going to feel the need, the necessity to control anything, either externally or internally. Through avoiding fear, through defensiveness, through aggression, fear is perpetuated. It becomes magnified and exaggerated. It is only when we know fear, know the actuality of insecurity, know how much of an actuality that is in living, and accept that, are comfortable with that, then we will no longer feel the need to escape from fear. They will develop a, a level of trust, a level of confidence within ourselves when we no longer feel the need to defend, simply because we are no longer 
threatened, simply because we're no longer reliant and dependent upon outer security, upon outer stability, for our own sense of inner balance. You can see in our culture, in our society, how much controlling actually goes on in some very many subtle and obvious ways. You can see how many politicians endeavor to stay in control through influencing the minds of other people, often through influencing the minds of other people through fear. We see how many authorities maintain that position of authority, maintain that position of control through perpetuating fear. One finds in, in particular religious sects leaders who were, who were promised safety from fear as long as they are submitted to. And other authorities, parental authorities, educational authorities, so frequently use fear, use, use the influence of fear in order to maintain a position of authority and position of control. In many, many more subtle ways, that same perpetuation of fear goes on in our culture. The fashion industry, the advertising industry, much of the media uses the same influence, uses the influence of fear in order to control, in order to influence and manipulate people. It's often much more subtle, the fear of being ridiculed, the fear of being different, the fear of being apart and standing out makes people conform to particular trends, to particular patterns of life, modes of living. And it is in the self-interest of many powerful people, of many authoritarian people, to perpetuate fear in order to protect and maintain their own element of control. The presence of fear, the presence of anxiety in our own lives, leads us to adopt different roles. Sometimes those roles are very temporary and transient, and some of those roles we assume and adopt in a long-standing way. The roles of the oppressor, the roles of the oppressed. And we become locked into those roles, conditioned by those roles, as long as our own fears, our own anxieties are not understood. It's not enough to see the, the element of control as it exists obviously in our culture and other people. We need to be able to look inwardly, very clearly, very carefully, to see the way in which we control ourselves, to see the way in which we try and manipulate and form and condition our own lives. Because when we see control, we also see fear. And when we see fear, we have the potential, the potential to be free from fear. When there is anxiety, when there is insecurity, we seek for safety. We want to be protected, 
We want to be protected from vulnerability. We want to be protected from pain. And safety, the desire for safety, is often seen as being satisfied through being able to create for ourselves a world which is predictable, which is certain, which is in many ways, through that predictability, familiar and safe. Safety is often equated with being able to control. When we're in control, when we have a feeling of being in control, we often feel safe. Being able to control our world, being able to control ourselves. In order to maintain that position of safety, that sense of being in control, does of course mean as much as possible removing the disorder, removing the unpredictable, removing the uncertain from our own lives. Because it is the unpredictable, it is the uncertain, which threatens that feeling of being in control, that position of having power, that position of feeling, on whatever level it is, safe. And so order, order is often seen as being the solution when there is chaos, when there is disorder within ourselves, or where there is confusion or anxiety within ourselves. Order, the ability to order our minds, the ability to order our worlds, is often seen as being the, the answer. And so that order is sought in different ways. At times it's sought through habit through cultivating certain habits, through cultivating certain routines and patterns. Our days, our lives, assume a quality of predictability, and in that, a quality of safety. Knowing what we shall do from hour to hour, from, from day to day, removes a kind of anticipation, gives a, a sense of being in control, a position of, of being having an ordered life. And as long as nothing interferes with those routines, as long as nothing interferes with those habits, that sense of being in control is maintained. The future is seen to be continuing in the, in the pattern of the present. We try as much as possible to remove the, the uncertain, the unpredictable, and we have, at some level, a sense of security can see, even when we come into a new situation, such as a retreat, how the mind seeks to make it familiar, how the mind in many ways seeks to make it safe. How quickly, when we come into a retreat often, there's that endeavor to organize ourselves, to organize my walking spot, to organize my sitting space, to organize my living space, my eating space. And at times, that organization, it's true, gives the mind less to feed on, in that it doesn't have to think, where am I going to eat next, where am I going to sit next? But on the other hand, it also satisfies that craving for the familiar, for the secure within the mind.
the difficulty in cultivating those habits through in protecting ourselves through habits is that the orderliness of our minds is then dependent on our habits being unthreatened. The sense of safety within ourselves is then dependent on our habits being maintained, our sense of order being maintained. And we see what a shallow veneer of security we have when in some way we are threatened, when in some way our particular routines, our habits, our patterns are upset. I wonder how, how you would feel if you came into the meditation room to find some other being sitting on your zafu. Or if you have your own particular favorite eating spot and someone has the gall to go and sit there one day. Or you have your own particular familiar walking spot which feels very much mine. And you go to it and you find somebody else treading merrily along it. Often you find, of course, the inability to accept that. The, the mind becomes upset. The mind becomes disturbed. And that sense of safety, that sense of balance, seems to disintegrate suddenly. In India, we very much experimented with this during one time when we had a very long retreat. And we, we produced the unpredictable retreat. We produced the uncertain retreat in that we took away everybody's watches and took away all the clocks and only Christopher and I had the bells and only Christopher and I had the schedule and we would have bells sometimes at two o'clock in the morning for dinner and sometimes we would have two hour sitting periods and a 10 minute walking period and a 10 minute sitting period and then we would have breakfast at three o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> and at, after two days honestly people were quaking absolutely quaking <laughs> it being just being finding just how much they were dependent on knowing what was going to happen in order to feel secure and sometimes we just take it for granted that things will happen and that we don't derive any sense of security from that. But I can only guess from the interest that takes place in the schedule <laughs> that goes up on the board that it serves some other purpose in people's minds than just to guess what is going to come next. And I wonder yourself how many times in the day you check the schedule. I mean, we've never changed it. Once it's up, it's up. We very rarely change it. It's there from the morning. And one knows a bell will go, and you either sit, you walk, and all that you ever have is the present moment anyway, whether you're sitting, whether you're walking. doesn't matter at all whether you're standing on your head. But still, the mind really loves to know what is going to happen next. How, how is my, my day, my world, going to be organized? It's useful, it's useful to experiment with our habits. It's useful to experiment with our limits. It's useful to experiment with what we take for granted. It does seem that the more disorderly the mind is, the more sense of chaos or confusion we have within ourselves is also the degree that we try and order our worlds. And we can become compulsive about that orderliness. 
And what it seems that we're actually trying to do through the cultivation of those habits, those patterns, those routines, is trying to protect ourselves and prevent ourselves from dealing with life as it actually is. What we try and do is we set up a model of what will happen, what should happen, what we expect to happen. And in that, the world becomes very familiar through our labels, through our, through our routines. And it, in some ways, protects us from having to deal with the changes, the dynamics, the challenges of each moment. It seems that through trying to create a comfortable world, an orderly world, we try in many ways not to expose ourselves to the challenge of change, to the challenge of the unfamiliar. Instead, through our routines, through our habit patterns, through our fixed opinions, our fixed standards, our expectations, we try and create an unchanging center in the midst of a changing world. And we, intellectually, we can see how completely illogical that is, to try in any way to create a world which is predictable, secure, and safe and certain. And yet the continuation of it is a real indication of a lack of trust, a lack of confidence within ourselves. And in trying to create that unchanging center, a static world, a familiar world, we perpetuate on a, more, on a more fundamental level, we perpetuate a feeling of fear and a feeling of insecurity. The more that we try and protect ourselves from having to deal with change, from having to deal with challenge, the more that we try and find ourselves relying upon the familiar for our sense of security, is the degree that anxiety and insecurity grows within ourselves, is the degree that a lack of confidence, a lack of trust in our ability to cope with change, to understand change, grows. The search for security, the search for that safety and predictability is such a driving force in our culture, is such a driving force in the individual, and it is a search which makes us narrow, which makes us tense, which makes us closed. At times we do manage to create a world which seems somehow stable, which seems somehow certain and predictable. And yet as soon as we do create that, if we look carefully, we would also see that we also grow stagnant and dull in that world. That as soon as we surround ourselves with, with comfort, as soon as we protect ourselves with a cocoon of safety, as soon as we remove, or in whatever level, the unpredictable from our lives and pre prevent ourselves from dealing with life as it actually is, we find ourselves becoming increasingly dull, increasingly stagnant. Because true growth can only take place when we are in touch with life as it is however threatening, however challenging that actuality is. A learning relationship to life, a relationship in which we will grow, is a relationship which is experimental. It's a relationship in which we're willing to 
set aside the familiar, set aside the comfortable, in which we're willing to let go of the old and to meet the challenges of the unfamiliar, the new. Fear makes us set limits constantly of what we're capable of, what we're able to do, what we're able to understand, what we're able to cope with. Fear constantly makes us set those limits for ourselves and that same fear makes us hide within those limits. An experimental relationship is one where we see where we have set our limits, where we have protected ourselves, where fear has created certain boundaries in our world, where fear has, has brought a, a suffocating effect upon our potential or our vision of ourselves where fear makes us stick with the familiar, with the old, with, with the comfortable. An experimental relationship is a dynamic relationship where we're constantly exploring those limits. And a retreat is certainly an excellent opportunity to explore limits. Because often, even on the first day of a retreat, people find themselves limiting themselves of what they're able to do, how much they're able to extend themselves, how much they're able to commit themselves to, how deeply they're able to go. Often people, I find, have very fixed ideas on the first day. They say, well, I've got to take it a bit easy, you know, go into it slowly, take it very easy. I don't want to push it, you know. I'll do a couple of sittings today. I'll do another one tomorrow. And the day after that, I might try and do four. You know, I might try and sit for 20 minutes without moving. And oh, I allow myself to move five, six times during a city. I don't want to push it. I know, you know. Often all these limits are set up. Oh, no, I can't possibly do a whole day of meditation. I need a break. I need to go and have that cup of tea and a little nap, a little rest to restore my energy. So often those limits are there. Uh, and so often we, we just condition ourselves to those limits. We accept them. And then we really suffocate our own potential. We immediately put the sort of uh, manhole cover upon our vision of ourselves and our, and our capabilities. It's useful to explore them. If you've got to watch, hide it. Really hide it. See how time conscious we are. What difference does it make in the middle of a city and you've looked at your watch and you find there's 20 minutes left? If you're feeling lousy, then you think, oh, 20 minutes. And if you're feeling good, you think, oh, dear me, only 20 minutes left. I could sit forever. Why look at your watch? doesn't make any difference whatsoever. Looking at your watch doesn't speed up the sitting. It doesn't slow down the sitting. It's still just sitting. If you're, you know, you're, you're walking meditation, you, you look at your watch, only 10 more minutes to walk, a big deal. You know, what difference does it make to the mind? What difference does it make to what is? There's only 10 more minutes to walk. Set aside the watches. See how, how time-conscious we are. See how much we, we use time to reassure ourselves or, or become threatened by it. Experiment is sitting. Who said you can only sit for 45 minutes? There's, there's no punishment, so you, nobody comes along beating you off your mat at the end of an hour and forcing you out of your meditation room. <laughs> try it a bit longer. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with experimenting. Try to see what it feels like to sit for an hour and a half. See what it feels like to, to, to go through the whole day without any breaks. You won't have a breakdown, I promise you. It's okay. Anybody can go through a whole day of meditation. You can do it. 
But really be aware where we've got these limits on ourselves of what I can't do, what I'm able to do. Really be aware of where through our own limits we're, we're suffocating our own vision of our potential as a person. Explore them. Just gently, just tentatively. You don't have to do it all at once. Just gently take, take something each day that's useful to explore. If you sleep an hour less, who knows? Maybe wonderful, maybe a wonderful breakthrough. It's useful, especially, particularly, when we take it upon ourselves, when it's not imposed upon us. When we really look where we have our own limits and take it upon ourselves to explore them, to experiment with them. And so much growth, so much learning, so much understanding can come out of that because it makes so much more the anxieties, the fears that limit us so conscious. In order to have that experimental relationship to life, we truly need to treasure growth, understanding and clarity over security, over that sense of of being safe. Habits and routines and patterns lead us only to live on, on the surface of existence. And we can hardly say we're even living at all when we've tried to remove ourselves from the dynamics of life by protecting ourselves with a cocoon of safety. Relationships with other people are an area of living which tend to be a source of a great deal of anxiety, a great deal of uncertainty. And so they also tend to be an area of living where we see this element of control manifesting itself very strongly. The placing of expectations and demands upon other people and dispensing disapproval when they're not conformed to is an endeavor to control another person is an endeavor to make them become the kind of person we want them to be. The threat of rejection is a fear which makes people conform, is, a, is an expression of control. Control in relationship, in whatever way it takes place, destroys love destroys affection, destroys care. We only ever feel the need to control another person as long as there is a fear within ourselves of not being accepted as we are. We only allow ourselves to be controlled as long as that same fear exists, as long as we don't know ourselves, trust ourselves, and so are afraid to be alone. Power, aggression, oppression in relationship are all related to control, and control is related to fear. And in many ways, fear in itself is related to pleasure. The two go together. There's no doubt that the mind derives a certain degree of pleasure in the security of being reinforced, flattered by other people. 
And there's no doubt that there's a certain fear that comes up when that pleasure is threatened. There's a certain pleasure, for sure, in, in approval, in, in being reinforced, in being accepted. And there's a certain fear that exists in relationship if that approval is withdrawn. To have relationships of equality, to have relationships of love, you need to be able to set aside those roles. Because there can never be a relationship of equality where that need to control exists. And it takes a tremendous amount of understanding to have a relationship of equality, a tremendous amount of acceptance. We need to see whenever there is control in relationship, there's also dependency. Because the, the oppressor in relationship is always dependent upon there being an oppressed there in order to maintain that control. The oppressed person can only exist in that role in relationship as long as they tie themselves to an oppressor. Those roles are always interdependent. And, the, and control existing relationship can only exist as, that in, as long as that interdependence exists. The confrontation of fear, the setting aside of roles, can be very painful. But that painfulness, understanding fear, confronting it in ourselves, confronting and understanding what it means to be alone and to be comfortable in that aloneness, is also the price of freedom. To truly be able to be together with another person on whatever level in our relationships, we first need to know what it feels like, what it means to be alone and to have a sense of completeness, a sense of fullness, a sense of totality in that sense of being alone. If we at all find ourselves in the position of trying to control our world or trying to control other people, we will also find ourselves to some degree trying to control ourselves. And that inner control, when directed inwardly, is suppression. The suppression of thoughts, suppression of feelings, the suppression of emotions. Suppression is bred from fear. The fear of what would happen if we were out of control, if we didn't suppress. The fear of being disapproved of. The fear of not being accepted by others. The fear of being rejected. And all of that suppression, when it takes place, always breeds tension. Invariably, when tension continues in meditation, there is on some level suppression taking place. Certainly avoidance of the unpleasant, avoidance of what we don't want to accept, is suppression. To be truly secure, which means to be balanced, to be stable within ourselves, we need to be able to see where the mind is creating its own fear where the mind is creating the need to control. We're often not afraid of what actually is. 
We're afraid of what might be. We're afraid of what might happen, what could happen, what may take place. The mind creates fear through its projection, through its speculation, through its memories, through its own conditioning. It creates these limits, these fears, which lead us to control outwardly or inwardly. Are often, <coughs> it is only when we can set aside those kind of thought patterns and actually confront what is, that we can see that there is no need to be afraid, that there is no need to defend, that there is no need to be aggressive. It takes a tremendous amount of self-acceptance to be free from fear, so that the mind doesn't manufacture its speculations. Again and again, we see fear because it conditions us. It influences our behavior. It influences our actions. It influences how we relate. And the first step in dealing with fear is cutting through that conditioning process so that one seeks, ceases to avoid in life, simply ceases to avoid and begins to confront, begins to be with, accepts that there's pain in that, accepts that it's difficult, accepts that there's no guarantees. But through seeing the need for inner trust, inner confidence, ceases to avoid. In meditation, we see the mind struggling to stay in control. If we notice this tendency of the mind, this need of the mind to be always labeling, to be always naming, to be always valuing, comparing, and judging, and all of those activities, it's the endeavor of the mind to stay in control. Because through our labels, through our names, through our judgments, we make what is happening familiar to us. We can be able to place things in particular categories, in the categories of the familiar, the categories of the known. And that makes the actuality secure, in some way safe. Yet at the same time, it does, it's those same labeling, it's that same naming process, judging process, comparing process, which prevents us from seeing ourselves, from seeing the world as we actually are. Because so often the label, the name, means that we can dismiss something. And one needs to be very wary, very wary of, in any way, I feel, cultivating labels and names in meditation. One needs to be cautious, in the, in the sense of really examining how much we are trying to control what is going on through those names and labels. For example, to slap a name on something, to slap a label on something, often is a way of bringing that to an end, or bringing our perception of it to an end. For example, we say anger. Aha, that's very familiar. We know what that is. We've got angry before, and yes, and I know what will happen. And that often means that we cease, cease to actually feel, actually experience, actually see on a very deep level that anger in that moment, which is very different from any other anger in any other moment, in many ways, 
It is unique. We slap a label on ourselves as being a particular kind of person, and often that means that we accept an image of ourselves. We accept a, a personal reality on the basis of that label. So often we see other people, we've probably seen it in our, when we see other people here, how often the mind loves to place a label on people. Well, that person looks very friendly, or that person looks very, looks very kind of hostile or unfriendly. And how often we, we have, it's particularly when we are silent, the mind then dances with its labels, dances with its judgments on other people. And how often, if you notice, when you've placed a label on a person initially, sometimes the first day of the retreat, you cease to see that person anymore. They simply have become an image, a name, a label in the mind, which means we don't need to see. Much of the noise that we experience in meditation is the sense of I trying to stay in control, trying to maintain a position of familiarity, a position of safety, and the meditation certainly is to see that controlling element. It's to relinquish control. It's to, in many ways, to surrender very totally to being with what is and simply steps out of the director's chair and allows things to be, which is also allowing yourself to feel, to experience, to see, to hear. In that, the meditation is being still, often not being in that position, allowing yourself not to be in the position of directing, of manipulating, of, of choosing and selecting, but simply being with what is. In that, we become very silent. When we cease to control or to try to control, the element of fear also becomes very obvious. But one develops in that a kind of inner trust, a kind of inner confidence, which can accommodate fear, which can see that insecurity is the actuality of life, that anything else is an illusion, that change is the actuality of life, and finds in that acceptance, in that trust, and in that confidence finds what it really means to have a vitality of living, where one is living with the insecure, living with the unfamiliar, and growing with it. And in that, fear ceases to be an enemy, ceases to be something to avoid or escape from is when there is inner trust, inner confidence, that we discover what it means to be no longer in control and simply, very simply, just to be with what is. May all beings be free from fear. May all beings live and grow in understanding. 
may all beings live with awareness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.